At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. While some people are focused on the gyrations of the stock market, we wanted to spend this week taking a look at one of the key players. And when it comes to Unique, there is no company quite like Robinhood. Founded in April 2013 by two 20-something math majors from Stanford, the company would introduce a new model of investing catering to young people with a mission to, quote, provide everyone with access to the financial markets, not just the wealthy. And they scored remarkable successes, among them cutting the cost of trading long inherent to investing. But the company has had its fair share of challenges as well, from intense regulatory scrutiny of its business model, public outcry from an early decision to halt the trading of game stock, and a slowing economy and haywire stock market eroding retail interest in meme stocks and other speculative investments. Now, to talk us through the latest and what Robinhood may have in store, I am delighted to have Dan Gallagher here on the show with us. Now, Dan is himself an original, a former SEC commissioner and now chief legal officer at Robinhood. He has a unique perspective on not only the industry, but also the likely regulatory curve and how it's poised to impact how people make investments. It's this kind of perspective that we at The Beat love to get. So in this episode, we're going to kick the tires on where Robinhood's been and where it will be going and how it plans to take millennials and regulators along with them on the ride. Dan, thanks so much for joining the show. Chris, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. All right. I guess we will start with the basics. Uh, Robinhood really did, uh, I think, forever change the world of stock trading. But just so everyone's sort of on the same page, maybe you can explain to our listeners in a nutshell just why the company is so famous. Yeah. So look, I think uh, the company, first of all, is so famous because of just how ubiquitous it is. We have 23 million active customers on the platform. And you know, if you take a step back and think about that, Right? You can't be on our platform if you're under the age of 18. Uh, most of our customers tend to be younger rather than older. So, so say like 60 and older, you don't have too many customers. So between 18 and 60, you know, that's a pretty significant slice of the U.S. population. And we have a pretty significant portion of that slice on our platform, you know, fully engaged and active, um, which is really exciting. So we have a lot of users. Uh, we get a lot of attention, if you've noticed, maybe in the press uh, and elsewhere. Anything we do, yeah, right. I mean, it just I mean, I've noticed every once in a while. Yeah, I mean, and especially, of course, you know, through COVID, right? When we had this huge rise in retail investing, you couldn't turn on any TV outlet, cable news, anywhere, radio. You know, it was all about 
Robinhood, retail investing, you know, obviously, uh, you know, leading into the events of uh, early January or late January of, uh, of last year, that, that was sort of the culmination of this retail rise. And Robinhood's just been been at the center of it. And it all comes back to the, the, the design, the original thought of the two founders, Vlad Tenev and, and Beju Bot, was let's build a brokerage firm on an app, right? Let's, we're not going to build some building down the road from you and have some brokers walking around and doing office hours where you can walk in. That's the old model, right? And, the, and you had that old model, and then it kind of transformed in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like, okay, I got the office down the, the road, but I also have a website. You can come onto my website, and you can even trade there, right? Uh, and, and then those same firms have bricks and mortar, a website, and now they try to translate that website into an app, and, and the results are pretty uneven if you've looked around at, at, at those. So Vlad and Beju say, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. We're going to build an app that's a brokerage firm. It's going to be an app that acts like so many other apps that that young customers want, young investors want. It's going to fit their lifestyle. It's going to give them information the way they want it. It's going to have ease of use the way they want it. And that's what they did. That's what was so revolutionary about it and so popular. And then on top of it, they said, guess what? No commissions, no account minimums, right? We're going to make this as cheap and easy as possible for you. And it just took off like wildfire. What you really identified was Robinhood being part of what we've really seen as the digital transformation of finance and the economy. Obviously, the pandemic fast forwarded that process. But but even when you sort of look at where things are now, right, and you look at the state of digital transformation now coming into this new reality, this new economic reality. And, and I think, you know, it, it's pretty safe to say it's 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 a bit of a mess out there. I mean, we have inflation. We know that that is not uh, transient. We have, you know, the Fed hiking interest rates. We have geopolitical issues with Ukraine and and, and, and spooked uh, markets and, and bottlenecks. And we've seen a big pullback from people really pulling back from everything that is technology, you know, from, from, from big tech names to cryptocurrency. When you think about what's happening in the economy, uh, Robinhood has also been through a lot. So maybe you can just take a step back and just talk about what that means for your business. When you think about the turmoil right now and where the company's been and where it's looking to really lean in uh, in the face of, of these challenges. Sure. So we think about our business, we always uh, think customer first, right? So, so, you know, I can answer your question two ways. One is, How's it impacting our customers, this change in the market dynamics out there? And, you know, clearly when you see the Dow Jones and NASDAQ just getting crushed day after day, and I think it's happening here in real time as, as we speak again uh, for another day, you know, that's going to impact investors, retail investors, um, you know, more than most in the sense that they're, you know, so sensitive to these market swings. And, you know, from, from our perspective, what we see, though, it, you know, uh, is really kind of interesting. We, we have so many smart customers on our platform. There's been this sort of notion, this meme over the years, oh, Robinhood investors, they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're acting recklessly. They, they can't be educated investors. And I just get mad when I hear this. It, it drives me crazy because you know the activity we see on our platform, yeah, surely with 23 million customers, you're going to see some, some in investing uh, you know, or trading that's not really investing. You're going to see folks uh, doing things you know, that might not be the best advised. Um, but for the most part, we see people acting very rationally, right? And, and market conditions like today, we, we don't see them liquidating their portfolios. We see them buying on dips. We see all sorts of really, you know, interesting 
movements by our customers that make me very happy, quite frankly, because it shows they're gaining experience. They've seen some ebbs and flows, uh, but but it's incumbent on us, Chris, that we've got to make sure they have the educational materials, the access to information. You know, whether it be you know the the technical stuff that's on our learn page, you know, but more importantly, things like our snacks newsletter, things that are explaining you know the markets to them. And we've th- those are hugely successful. I mean, the the tens of millions of downloads of snacks. Uh, you know, recently, and I mean, just really, really important resources uh, for investors. And then there's then there's the Robinhood corporate side. Sorry, the, the the other side of this, right? Which how does it impact our business, right? And you've seen, obviously, we had our earnings a couple of weeks ago. It's hard, right? We are we are so transaction dependent in our revenue model that when you have markets down, when you have transaction activity down, obviously, it's going to impact our bottom line, and so it's tough. But but importantly. You know, one thing that we did and we announced uh, in our earnings is that we talked about a pivot towards focusing on our 23 million customers, right? That, you know, in Silicon Valley, you know, whether you're fintech or straight tech, right, there's always an emphasis on account growth, right? Just expanding the number of users on your platform. And Robinhood's done that better than most, right? We, we added, my God, we've added 15 million investors since I've been affiliated uh, with the firm over just a, you know, two or three year period. So now we've got these customers, and instead of just continual focus on account growth, which we still want, of course, we're going to focus on how we better serve these customers, how we better provide them services and education and and things like that. And I think that's really important in this type of down market. It's it's like who's important to us? These customers, they've been here with us. They've you know they're riding through some tough times, and let's better serve them. You're bringing up really two important sort of secular changes. You know, one is what you're identifying in terms of the the changes and really the reactions of retail investors to what's happening in the stock market. And, and I think that's a really interesting direction. And I, I'd like to, to, to know a little bit more. And, and obviously also then what does it mean in terms of of, of education and investor education? And, and how do you how does what does that look like really in a market that's uh, much more volatile, but let, let's let's just sort of stick with that. I mean, when you look at your retail investors, what are you seeing with them right now? I mean, you're saying that, that that they're not necessarily liquidating. Are they? Do you are you seeing more people buying more? Are they uh, purchasing different kinds of financial products, or do you see that they're uh, maybe engaging with different parts of the platform more than they used to? Uh, maybe the educational materials. Like, what, are you noticing anything different in terms of the behavior? of people on on the platform. Yeah, like I said, you know, we're not seeing them just liquidating and running to cash, you know, or, or running scared uh, from the markets as a, as a group. Um, we have seen some shift in what they own, right? So whereas uh, two years ago, maybe they were buying Zoom and Peloton, Tesla for sure is always uh, very popular on our platform. You know, they, they might be now shifting to things that are sort of post-COVID, like airlines and and others that were kind of beat down over uh, you know the COVID period, and so and to me that's kind of it's just awesome, right? It just shows an awareness of the markets and it shows an awareness of the times. Um, and, and in down markets, it's important for our investors, you know, for our customers on the platform to be looking at these trends, to be understanding the current environment and pivoting uh, where necessary. One of the new products you're rolling out now is options, and options can be pretty risky, both in terms of their cost and and people can lose a good deal, even given their use as hedging instruments. Um, as you move into more complex products, how do you make sure people don't 
get in over their heads. I mean, risk is everywhere for sure. But how should Robinhood think about the on-ramps into these kinds of products? What's the responsibility uh, of, of firms like Robinhood? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Options is a, a very important product uh, for us. It's a, it's a product that, quite frankly, the vast minority of our customers actually use um, important to us from a revenue perspective to you know put that on the table, but um, and then you know depending on your portfolio, obviously an important risk mitigation uh, tool you know to the extent folks are um, engaging it for those purposes. So you know I look I think one thing you said it's kind of new. It's actually kind of old at this point. Options you know I was looking the other day somebody sent me a quote from uh, Arthur Levitt when he was chairman of the SEC talking about options traders, retail options traders being, you know, younger, uh, more aggressive, you know, this was back in the 90s, obviously. And I think with the advent of online trading, obviously, that just sparked uh, a whole new uh, population that was uh, of investors that was interested uh, in options. So, you know, Robinhood's had options on the platform, I think, since maybe 2018. Um, Like I said, it's a, you know, vast minority of using it, but also, you know, especially complex options strategies. I mean, that's where you get into these questions of, as you said, you, you don't want to make sure, uh, you want to make sure that folks aren't getting in over their head. Do they have the right access to tools? Uh, do they have the right access to education and the like? We've done a lot of work, Chris, on that over the last two years. Um, you know, we had a very tragic uh, circumstance of, of, you know, one of our options customers, um, you know, uh, committing suicide, you know, two years ago, and and it was it sparked a lot of real public debate about this. And internally, we we wore this, we took this on. You know, this was something that really impacted every management uh, member. It, it impacted the founders tremendously, and we put together a, a task force and and looked at our options offering upside down and sideways. And we think we've made really uh, terrific enhancements uh, to the offering. We certainly have focused a lot on education and. You know, we hired an options education specialist. We have uh, YouTube materials uh, now available to our customers, um, you know, to educate them um, on, on various option strategies. We actually have a, an educational uh, segment between options level two and three. So three would be the most sophisticated where you have sort of multi-leg options. We have a, a, a mandatory pause of sorts where you, you know, you take an educational module, um, which we think is very important. It's fascinating. Uh, you're a former regulator, and when you start talking about the emergence of the new retail investor, uh, you start to get to some questions, some very tough questions about inclusion and participation in the economy. To what extent are you seeing in your data more opportunities being open to diverse or historically overlooked investors? And, and what does uh, that mean where more exposure also means more risk? Uh, obviously, that's on everyone's minds right now, uh, this balancing act between opportunity and uh, paternalism. So look, I think uh, financial market inclusion is is just what we do at Robinhood. The mission, literally, to democratize finance for all is real. It's not one of these corporate slogans that people put on the wall and you know uh, no one pays attention to. It really is imbued in everything we do. And I can tell you, coming out of the CT meetings at Robinhood, it's raised time and again, right? As we make critical decisions on a new product rollout or a revenue issue, it's like, how does this really accord with our mission, right? To, to democratize finance for all. And so with that mission, you know, as the baseline, 
and eight years or, or so under our belt here, what we look at, we're super proud of the job we've done at bringing more diverse investors into the market. Um, if you look, and I don't have it in front of me, and some one of your listeners is going to fact check me on something, but I'm just going to throw out loose numbers. Uh, if you look at the Fed data on retail investors over the last five years, right? If you look at the Fed data on diversity of retail investors, the numbers doubled, right, in the last five years. And if you you just put the onion paper up against that graph of Robinhood's rise, it's not stretched to see that Robinhood is responsible for a lot of this, right? And even even triggering the copycats that come along and do the same thing, right? No no account minimums, no commissions, things like that that promote inclusion. You know, Robinhood really is the reason why we've seen this this rise in diversity. Um, I'm told on on our platform right now because I was curious what our uh, latest statistics are, and so we have a a survey that we did. Um, you know, last year that said that 37% of our customers are non-white, which is a, a much bigger percentage uh, that we understand that's uh, on other platforms. And it makes us super proud. Uh, and at the same time, we get it, right? Here are communities that were, we were talking about inclusion, there was preclusion, right? There was just, there was nobody being invited in. There was nobody being catered to or served, right? In this uh, lower echelon, when I, when I say lower echelon of in economic, echelon of folks. They were ignored. Um, and, you know, I think this is personally, uh, given my own background and everything, I think it's tragic that we had to wait this long, you know, for for a, this type of disruption to come along and serve these communities. So we've got these folks in, you know, we are super proud that it's so diverse. But to your point, we also feel the weight of this responsibility, right? You're in now. Do we have the right guardrails in place. We're, we're self-directed brokerage firms. So we have to be really careful, right? We're not going to be a reg BI broker. We don't want to tell you what to do or not to do in your portfolio, but what basic guardrails are in place and, and are we happy with them? Or is the education appropriate? And it's funny, education at Robinhood, you would think you could just say, oh, let's cut a check and let's dump stuff on people and feel good about it. I will tell you, I've had these fights with the founders at times, you know, when you're like, oh my God, let's just make the regulators happy and just throw education. Well, guess what? No one wants to read a 10K, right? They're, they're not going to do it. So, and, and they are just adamant and God bless them. They're adamant. Let's give people education the way they want to receive it in a way that's meaningful for them, right? You look at our learn page, we've been accused of, you know, being too colloquial on the, on the learn page. And, and in part, yeah, maybe, I don't know. It depends. Uh, it's like art. It's in the eye of the holder, right? Yeah, well, you're, you're you're talking to the guy who said that uh, you know maybe you should think about disclosure NFTs for for cryptocurrency. <laughs> I, I would love yeah. it. I mean, really? you know, you're you're you know you're, you don't have to convince me on that. Uh, let's 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 talk a little bit about the regulators and and Robinhood. At, you know, as you said, is one of those companies that is always going to attract attention no matter what. You know, a lot of the earlier tension had to do with the PFOF, the payment for order flow issue. And, and, and you know, it attracted some scrutiny from uh, the SEC's uh, chairman, Gary Gensler. Uh, maybe uh, uh, you can just give us a little bit of a breakdown about PFOF and, and you know, uh, just again, for the listeners who may not be aware of what it is, you know, the, the 22nd uh, elevator speech on, on payment for order flow. But more importantly, where do you anticipate the, the regulatory curve heading and how do you anticipate that impacting the business? Sure. So, so if if it's possible, twenty seconds. PFOF, uh, you know, payment for order flow is a payment received by a retail broker like Robinhood uh, for the transmission of customer orders to a wholesaler. 
or a market maker. So a market maker, uh, over-the-counter market maker executes trades off of the exchange. So these are orders that aren't going to the the so-called lit markets, not going to the NASDAQ, New York, or other, otherwise. Uh, we send our orders to one of seven or eight, I believe, market makers now. When we send those orders, the market maker executes them and then gives most of the time gives price improvement to our customers. So a price better than the NBBO and gives us payment for order flow. And how do they do that? As you know, uh, Chris, there's a bid and an ask uh, for any market on the equity side. So we're talking about equities right now. The, the difference between the bid and the ask is captured by the market maker, right? They take their piece, they give us some as payment for order flow, and then they often uh, times uh, give price improvement to the customers. So this practice of receiving payment for order flow is around 40 years old. It, it basically rose in the 80s uh, when computers rose, right? When you had an NBBO being disseminated by the SIPs, by the securities information processors electronically, you had the ability to sit not on the exchange floor, but in your office building and, and actually trade electronically. And that gave rise to, to payment for order flow. You drew over-the-counter uh, market interest to yourself by paying out right. some payment for order flow. So this is a practice that's been around for 40 years. Now, the funny part is, and this is the part that really just gets me going on this, right? That many, many, many retail brokers, let's say the majority, I think it's the vast majority, but let's say the majority have for a long time, for decades, collected payment for order flow. But on top of that, they also charged you a commission, right? And I, I don't know about you. I remember, I'm, I'm old. You People can't see my gray hair on this podcast, but it's pretty gray. And I remember paying $75 commissions in the late 90s for trades. Right? I remember my dad paying $100 commissions in the late 80s. Um, commissions are huge and they take, the, take money right out of your principal, right? So you're investing less when you pay a commission. And until Robinhood came along and really busted up the idea of commissions, Firms were collecting payment for order flow and then tacking on, you know, by the end, it was somewhere between five and 10 bucks per trade, right? And so you sit there and you go, oh my God. So Robinhood takes away the commission, the thing that was really clobbering you as a retail investor, you know, collects this payment for order flow that firms have been collecting forever. And now all of a sudden, it's this boogeyman, this awful thing. And as you might imagine, I don't agree with that. Yeah. So just, you know, for, for the listeners, I mean, on an average trade, right? If if um, so, here I am. I'm going on the platform. Um, you know, my trade is maybe bundled with others or whatever, and and are executed by um, a market maker. Robinhood receives some money back from that. How much is that? You know, for your average trade, how much does your average user sort of see any of that incremental sort of fee or or or, or cost on the back end as yeah. compared to you know how large those commissions were? I mean, when you're looking, you know. Yeah, it's sort of comparing the apples to oranges, but yeah, I think uh, you know, and 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 look, I'm going to use round numbers again. I think roughly, on the average trade, we make somewhere around forty five cents on the trade, right? And and instead of seeing something that says, "Hey, Chris, you just paid," you know, you know, we got paid forty five cents um, on this trade. You see a message in a trade conference that says, "We collect payment for order flow," right? That's the the ten b ten. That's the SEC rule that mandates disclosure of the receipt of payment for order flow. And uh, you know, some ideas are out there right now for reform that would say, all right, well, you know, hey, what if we said, hey, Chris, we collected 42 cents, right? I actually think, you know, transparency will set you free. Like, fine. You know, technology is at a place now that we can do that. We could actually push that out to you, right? And if that's where the SEC goes with the reforms it's seeking, that's just smart stuff. Because then there's just no mystery about any alleged 
conflict here, right? Um, but it, but right now and in the past, you know, what you would see, you'd see, we, yeah, I paid a five or ten dollar commission, and then you'd have a more generalized disclosure. Hey, I also received some payment forward flow. Now, to be clear, and I'm saying on average, on bigger trades, we'll collect more payment forward flow. It really depends on the security. But I'm, you know, as I understand it, in the in the average sense of all the transactions that we have, you're talking, you know, a couple quarters, uh, a, a few dimes. It's not some you know, $1,000 per trade thing that some folks, uh, you know, get carried away with and, and believe it to be. So, so you know, with that being being the case, I mean, obviously, again, we have volatility, inflation, Ukraine, uh, PFOF, uh, certainly, you, you know, when you think about the regulatory landscape and the biggest question marks going forward, I mean, for Robinhood in particular, and and even frankly, beyond PFOF, you know, what do you see as as, as the biggest outstanding questions? You know, is, is it crypto or, or, or is it something else? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And so we have a, what I call internally the four pillars of, of regulatory policy issues that, that uh, you know, we face right now. One, um, you know, as you pointed out, we've discussed this payment for order flow. We'll see. I, you know, understand we're going to have a proposed rulemaking in that space soon. I, I don't expect that they'll ban it, but I do assume that there'll be some uh, frictions proposed to be introduced, and we'll have to work that uh, APA process and comment and try to make sure our voice is heard in that. Uh, crypto, as you touched on already, is obviously, I mean, you, you've been following it very closely. The, the regulatory policy in that space is as clear as mud uh, right now, right, where you have an enforcement first uh, uh, you know, policy coming out of the SEC where you know, any coin can be mysteriously deemed overnight a security and, and, and you know, bring with it all that comes from, from having an unregistered securities offering. So there's just a lot of peril in there and a, and a quest for security. And the Robinhood side, we're trying to engage the SEC. We've heard Chair Gensler say, come in and register. We're, we're working something we call crypto the hard way, which would be in a registered way. And we're trying to figure out if there's, uh, if that's a possibility or not. And it's, it's, it's far from clear to me that, you know, that that's a real path forward, but, but we'll see. We're going to keep working at it. And then uh, we have options. You already touched on options or complex products. You've seen FINRA come out recently with a notice to members asking questions about complex products, which would include certain types of ETFs, would include options, right? And so, you know, trying to, uh, you know, maybe insert more frictions in the ability of uh, retail firms to offer options and other products to to their customers. And so, we just filed our comment letter on that uh, last night. We're going to engage on that too, and hope uh, hope they can see the light there. That uh, you know, when in doubt, the, you should never you know you know preclude people from buying products. I, and I think you know the accredited investor definition, uh, Reg D to me, and I, I'm I'm getting a Reg D. Oh my God, I thought I knew it, uh, Chris, and then I went to Silicon Valley, and now I look at just all the opportunity in the private markets. And it just makes me tear up because I think, man, you know, like until I was an SEC commissioner, I said this very famously on the stage of our credit investor roundtable. I am not an accredited investor. Here, here I sit as an SEC commissioner. I can't, I don't meet any of your definitions, you know? You know, even with Commissioner Heron Lee, who was a recent guest, we, we brought this up. And I remarked that by card coordinating off private markets, you not only hive off opportunity, but likely impact people's risk taking in other markets, uh, and and in ways that may not always be healthy or or even further the mandate of the agency. 
Well, I was going to say one, one last, the, the fourth pillar is, is so-called gamification. And, and um, you know, I'm sure you've been paying attention to that. Uh, Chair Gensler and the commission put out a request for comment last year on this. Um, here's another one kind of like PFOF. I, I would just say, you know, coming out of the GameStop, uh, it, you know, matters late January last year, there was this narrative. First of all, there's a narrative, oh, Robinhood and other retail brokers are colluding with hedge funds. Well, that was disproved. Uh, we, we said it same same time, same day, but folks didn't believe us. But now there's an SEC report, there's judicial opinions, right? So that's disproved. Then there was this idea, oh, it's payment for order flow and gamification that are responsible for you know, the GameStop rally. And, you know, I just think that's a complete false narrative. You know, I think that's just folks, you know, looking to get at an issue and using uh, the GameStop rally as an excuse. You know, this idea of gamification that, that, as we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, building for us, building a brokerage firm on an app, building it in a way that's intuitive for our customers and, and, and acts the way that other apps act and, and, and is how they lead their life, right? They can buy a mortgage, they can buy life insurance. Why shouldn't they be able to buy stocks and crypto on an app? And so to call that gamification, I think is really dangerous, Chris. I'm just going to be, I'm going to throw that out there. I think it's dangerous because what it portends is that it's saying we don't want, it's like Charlie Munger, basically. I don't want certain people in the markets. They've, it's worked really well for me, but I don't want these other people coming into the markets. And look at, we already talked about who's coming into the markets a younger, more diverse class of investors. So this idea that gamifying, let's shut down the gamification. And I actually say like, what are you going to do? What's the rule going to say? Like, let's build, everyone has to have their app look like uh, a late 90s DSL dial up into your retail brokerage. That's going to save, you know, uh, investors. It's going to protect them. I don't think so. You know, just to jump in, I think there's really an interesting question as to how and whether the question or issue of gamification could also be used to promote learning. Uh, we've had this question of nudges introduced a couple of years ago by professors Richard Thaler and hard professor Cass Sunstein. I, I know quite a few folks are really thinking that through, and it's great to get a sense of that. I think regulatorily, there's a lot to be gained uh, for the next generation of investors in this domain. And there was uh, a lot to be gained getting you on the show, Dan. Thanks really so much for stopping by. You know, these are extremely busy and, and obviously sobering times. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I, I know it took a little doing, squeezing us in, uh, but thanks for joining the FinTech Beat. Well, that, thank you. It's a real honor for me. I'm a huge fan and, uh, you know, I hope, I hope uh, to do it again sometime. For years, people have been waiting for tech whether it be big tech, small tech, meme stocks, or crypto, to explode. And lots of people looking at the market over the last several months may, deep down inside, feel like some of those pesky retail investors are finally getting their comeuppance. But I think that that view lacks a lot of heart and nuance. Investing is, after all, always about timing. If you get in early and are able to participate in a company with explosive year-on-year -year rates of growth for a decade, it doesn't really matter if in the final year of the cycle there's a pullback. It's quite frankly the magic of compounding gains over time. The question is how to package a retail investor's exposure to stock and, for that matter, other alternative assets in ways that allow them to participate in a safe and diversified way. And that means enabling them to get in early and over the long term and ensuring that portfolios are diversified when it comes to their allocation of both boring and speculative assets. 
Now, getting the mix right won't always be easy, but it will be essential, regardless as to whether the economy is going to take a turn for the better or worse. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>